Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Thank you, everyone, for joining today's episode of How Did They Do a Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Sayla Prack. Today, I am honored to be joined by Levi Allen. So a little bit about Levi. Levi is the principal of Wealth Creation Asset Management, a real estate investment company that acquires and develops residential multifamily properties. Levi studied business at BYU in Idaho in 2012 to 2013, and also from 2015 to 2017, after returning home from a two-year church missions in Peru. As a principal, Levi has owned and asset managed over 100 million in assets, consists of over 600 units. In addition to multifamily acquisitions and development, the Allen's family owns over 13,000 acres of farms and ranch land in eastern Oregon. So Levi, thank you so much for spending time with me today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me, Selah. So Levi, if you don't mind, if you can share a little bit more about your background of how you get started with real estate, um, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So um, as you mentioned in my bio, I grew up on uh, farming and ranching. And I always, I guess I just started kind of getting into investing, um, just reading books. My older brother as well was getting into real estate investing. And I just started off buying my own smaller properties. I had some land and then I bought uh, four duplexes altogether, eight units. And then uh, I bought a 10-unit apartment building. Um, and then I was out of my own money and I wanted to keep kind of scaling. And that's when I started learning about syndication and using private capital. Um, so yeah, from there, I just studied more, networked with people that were doing it, found mm -hmm. some more partners that I uh, ended up doing let's see, like six syndications on. Um, and all this whole time, I was kind of helping my family diversify some of their holdings outside of agricultural and into some other commercial real estate assets. So yeah, I just, I run my own family office. And then on the side, I've got different family and friends that reach out and want to invest as well. So I do syndications as mm -hmm. well. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been up to. That is awesome. Can you share a little bit more about how you get started with the first uh, investment? Um, you mentioned that you started with a fourplex and um, how did you get into that fourplex? I know you, your family uh, has farmland, so you're already exposed to uh, real estate investing. But uh, how did you get into, you know, instead of uh, walking uh, with your family's uh, you know, way of investing in agriculture, you went to the multifamily, um, well, there'll be the fourplex and then after that into the four units and then and uh, multi-families families way. Yeah, so it was four duplexes all together. So it's an mm -hmm. eightplex, pretty much, um, eight units. And um, so I it probably been like a year, year and a half into really studying multi-family, um, just after reading a lot of books, podcasts, etc. So um, I actually had some a, a cattle herd from uh, growing up on the farm that I had built up over the years. I ended up selling all my cows to come up with, I think it was $90,000 for the down payment. And then I got seller financing 
for 75% of the purchase price. Um, and yeah, I did that deal and it did really well. Um, I refinanced out more than all of my money within a couple of years. Um, and then the land that I had on the farm, I sold that and I did a 1031 exchange into the 10 unit building in Utah. Mm-hmm. And then that one, yeah, it was about a couple of years. I was able to refinance out all my money. And then a year later, I sold it for more than double um, and yeah, tripled my money. And those, those were the good, t- the good times. Right now, it's a little bit slower. But so, yeah, I mean, I guess I just kind of self-educated myself and I had a good broker that was helping me and I was able to get seller financing on the first deal. So I didn't have to worry about mm-hmm. getting a bank loan and all that. Um, so, yeah, that's that- kind of how I got my start. Wow, that that is awesome! And um, what year was that? That was in 2017. 2017. Okay, yep. and then uh, when did you start your company, uh, syndication company? Uh, 2019. That's awesome. And um, so you mentioned that you have a broker that actually helping you finding the deals, right? Um, how do you find a good broker, especially in the today's market? you pretty much just got to show them um, your resources, your ability to actually execute and close on a transaction because they don't get paid till mm-hmm. a deal is closed. So you, you just got to spend time with them, get to know them, um, be honest with them, but show them your real capability of what kind of deal you can take down. Um, so they'll take you seriously to really go to bat for you to find um, a deal. And because it's a lot of work and commitment on their end to try to dig up you know, off-market properties. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah. So what are some of the ways that you can recommend uh, making sure that you show the brokers that you are a serious buyers and actually can close as well? And, you know, you mentioned about like uh, you close your uh, four duplex and then you also close for uh, 10 units. Um, like how large of a multifamily deals are, are you targeting and how did you get the brokers to take you seriously? So yeah, that's definitely evolved over the years. Uh, the first deal was three hundred forty-seven thousand. I put ninety thousand down. Um, I sold it for seven hundred thousand. The second deal was uh, eight hundred twelve thousand. I put two hundred sixty thousand down. I sold it for one point eight million. Um, the third deal was one hundred twenty-four units for seven point eight million. Um, we sold that one for twelve point four million. Um, and then, yeah, like the most recent deal that I helped my family mm-hmm. do, it was a $32 million deal, all cash, 1031 exchange that we closed. Um, and yeah, I'm right now I'm working on deals from like 10 to 50 million. Um, so the smaller deals are kind of more syndications. The la- On the larger side, I'm talking with some um, more institutional equity groups um, to partner with on. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a wide range, but yeah, I don't really like to go too far under like 10 million because it's it's really this pretty much the same amount of work um to close mm-hmm. on a deal of you know 10 million as it is 20 or 30 um yep 
That makes sense. And Levi's, it seems like you starting out like uh, 349K deals and then you jump pretty quickly to, uh, you know, like uh, 124 units, which is $12 million. And then after then, you know, like $32 million. Uh, just like uh, the, the scalability is uh, like really, really quick. Do you recommend people like doing something like you? So, you know, jump pretty quickly. So you mentioned earlier, you know, like the amount of work is pretty much kind of the same. Um, but at the same time, the down payments and if you don't have the investors who are working with you, you know, the capital raising portion of it, it can be significantly different, right? Uh, com- compared from a 12 million to a 32 million capital raise, uh, you know, like it's completely different. Um, any recommendation there? Yeah. So it probably sounds like this is really quickly, but this is from 2017 to 2023 was a 30 mi- $32 million deal. Um, mm-hmm. The one before that was a $15 million deal in 2021. So really, it's been, you know, six years in the making, little by little. Um, and I had some co-general partnerships on, on the first couple deals where uh, I didn't have to raise all the equity. I, I had some other general partners on the deal with me as well versus now I pretty much just I'm the lead general partner. And sometimes I'll bring on another, um, you know, smaller partner, but I'm more kind of the lead mm-hmm. role. Um, so it's evolved over time. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend anyone go and try to take down a deal bigger than um, you're comfortable with. Uh, there is a lot of risk involved mm-hmm. in, you know, your pursuit costs, your earnest money, your, you know, everything that comes on the front end. So, yeah, I think you just get around like-minded people and you build up that that uh, courage uh, doing deal, you know, whatever it takes to get started. Mm-hmm. Um you know, bigger is a little bit easier on the management side. Um, there's a lot of reasons to go bigger, but um, if you're not comfortable, you know, doing a hundred unit deal, starting off with something smaller first and, um, you know, getting all your ducks in a row and you can gradually work your way up. Got it. And Levi, as you mentioned about, you know, like um, being co-GP for the first couple of deals and also now you become like the lead role uh, as a lead GP right now, and then you can actually bring in co-GP, smaller co-GP to come on board uh, on your deal as well. Um, if our listeners are listening to right now, so what's the difference between the two as a lead and also as a co-GP coming on a deal? Can you elaborate a little bit more on the difference? Yeah, so there's a lot of different things that need to get done when you're taking down one of these deals. So you've got like the at-risk capital, the like the earnest money, uh, pursuit costs, and then there's getting the loan and you need like a key principal that can sign on the loan to meet the lender's requirements of like net worth and liquidity. And then you've got, you know, asset management roles as far as the property operations, like investor updates. And then you've got uh, the capital raise. Um, so there's a lot of different pieces that go into that. So I, you know, I, I do everything, but I also bring on other partners to do pieces what I've seen be successful a lot is people that are just getting started. They don't can't really get deal flow from uh, brokers because they mm-hmm. won't take them seriously. Um, but they have a network of people that want to invest. Um, so that's that's kind of what I've seen is the most kind of the least lowest barrier of entry for someone to get into the space is to help um, someone like myself where I have access to deals and I get a deal under contract. They can raise a portion of the equity. And then they've got to be involved in other aspects of the deal as well, just to meet SEC guidelines. But 
that's kind of the lowest barrier of entry to get into one of these deals because most people don't have, you know, a a hundred thousand to put at risk capital down on earnest money and to sign on on the loan. If the, you know, you got to have a pretty big balance sheet and mm-hmm. to to meet those requirements. And then a lot of people don't have experience with asset management and just um, following the business plan. So I know that's kind of a lot, but I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, definitely answer my question. Thank you so much for elaborate on that. And Levi's uh, earlier during our conversation, you mentioned about like if it's a smaller deal, you doing syndication and you bring in private investor uh, to invest on a deal. And for a larger deals, like a fifty million dollar deals or so, you having conversation with the uh, institutional capital partners. Um, you know, like if you can tell our listener a little bit, uh, you know, like what's the difference between the two, and uh, is there any uh, differences in terms terms of uh, raising capitals between the two parties. Yeah. So just kind of uh, a name that a lot of people use is like retail investors, just for everyday people, family and friends, accredited or non-accredited investors, just individuals. And that's kind of one bucket. And then you've kind of got like high net worth individuals, which is kind of in that bucket, but almost institutionalized. And then you've got family offices. It's kind of high net worth families, you know, it's kind of managed money, but it's, you know, high net worth families. And then you've got institutional equity, which is really like more institutionalized, which is pension funds, insurance companies. Uh, There's these big companies that have pools of capital that they Mm -hmm. need to deploy into, they have allocations of funds they need to deploy into say multifamily in, in the Mountain West you know, value add or core plus, whatever. And they're a lot more sophisticated. So they want you to have like really specific reporting um, Mm -hmm. requirements and they want a little bit more control as well on the deal and on, uh, you know, when you sell it and all just all sorts of things. So there's pros and cons to Mm -hmm. all of these buckets of capital. And I think it's good to have the iron in the fire with all of them, you know, to be able to pull to pull money from any of these, because like right now in this current market environment, the institutional equity is mainly on the sidelines for various reasons. So really it's like high net worth families and individuals, accredited and non-accredited investors that are, um, can be a little bit more opportunistic in this market to, to take advantage of because pricing is down quite a bit and you can uh, take advantage of some deals, but there is some uncertainty in the market. And then there's other times that, you know, once things kind of stabilize more in the economy and everything, then um, those institutions are going to likely come off the sidelines and, and then it can often be a cheaper cost of capital. So I know that's a lot, but yeah, so thank you so much for like differentiating between the two and Levi's. Um, from the deals that you have uh, been doing, especially in 2023, do you see any uh, changes in, in in terms of investor expectation? You mentioned that the institutional capital um, is kind of on a sideline. How about the retail investor? How How's their expectations in terms of the market itself? And um, what do you see um, they expected from a deal to making sure that it is a good deal for you? For them, yeah, I think their expectations have come up a little more too. Just because uh, if their money's sitting in a money market account or short term, you know, T bills or somewhere uh, more liquid, and it's earning you know four and a half to five percent right now, 
Um, you know, they really only want to invest in a deal that's above that as far as a cash on cash return. And then Mm -hmm. it's got, you know, the tax benefits and appreciation and the overall return can be higher. So, yeah, I think they have pulled back a little more as well. They're, they're a little bit more picky and kind of depending on the investors. I don't know. I, I, the appetite is kind of all over the board from what I've seen. So Mm -hmm. I I don't know that I can give a really good answer but they have expected a little bit higher cash yield returns as well. So that means you as a company would have to find a better deal, right? And yeah. uh, find a deal that can support that cash flow expectation to the investor. And you mentioned that the price has come down a little bit. And what are some of the strategies from your deals um, sourcing or or even conversation with the seller to making sure that these deals are actually a good deal, right? Because I see that the expectation from the seller's asking price and the offering price from the buyer are quite a bit of a gap and um, there's not a lot of transactions going on but if you are doing deals that means that you're doing something right right um so can yeah. you share if any of those uh, can be shared yeah pretty much all of 2023 the bid ask spread has been really wide and it's just the deals that have really only transacted have been the ones where they've had to meet the market because of either a loan maturity or a mm-hmm. divorce um, or some kind of breakup in the partnership Uh, where it's more of a forced sell. So like on this St. George property, they came up on the end of their construction loan. They were going to have to do like a huge cash in refinance to get into permanent financing. And they they weren't in a position to come up with capital to do so. Um, So they had to sell and it actually went on a contract once uh, prior to us going on a contract, did a couple million higher on the purchase price and it fell out. And yeah, there's just a lot of uncertainty in the market. And so, yeah, we felt like we picked it up at a pretty decent value, probably 25% below the peak value of call it Q1 of 2022. Mm -hmm. Um, And then values have continued to go down another probably five to 7% throughout the rest of 2023. So our timing wasn't perfect, but we felt like we got a decent value, the best deal we could find at the time. But yeah, I'm, the other deals I'm working on right now, it's uh, a divorce family that's divorcing and it's just kind of a forced sell. They've owned the property for 10 years, so their basis is nothing. And um, But yeah, it's tricky. If, if someone's bought a property within the past like three years to try to transact on that, unless they need to get out because of a loan maturity, it's really hard to... I mean, the bit, like you said, the bid ask spread is just too wide to right. provide, to make sense with today's interest rates that, that not a lot is transacting. Got it. Got it. So just making sure that you keep turning that uh, listing, like available listing, right? Or even off market deals until you actually find one in this type of situation or coming up with, uh, you know, like a creative uh, financing or something like that in order for the deals yeah. to work. Um, as you mentioned, by the end of 2023, the price possibly come down to like another five or 10%. And I know uh, the, uh, the Fed just released the news that they will be lowering the interest rate sometimes in 2024, um, you know, like if not uh, a couple of times, uh, you know, like maybe it's like four times or so. Um, what is your expectation of 2024 is with the multifamily space? Um, you know, like, is it a good time to buy still? Or what is your, what's your thought on it? Yeah, so I can uh, do this argument both ways. <laughs> it's a good time to buy and, and we may still see further declines. So I guess I'll share both sides of the spectrum. 
Um, yeah, rates, the sentiment now is that rates are going to be coming down. I think they've priced in uh, four cuts in 2020. The market priced in four cuts for 2024. Um, yeah, you can see the 10 years fall. It's down 110 basis points from the peak in October. And, you know, all of the biggest REITs have these big opportunity funds that are all this money is on the sidelines and it's ready to come back in. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you want to try to get in before they come back in because then it's just too hard to compete and price is going to start going back up. But there is a lot of loan maturity still to come. And if rates don't come down fast enough and low enough, a lot of these um, deals are are going to be in trouble. They're going to have to be forced sales. So mm -hmm. that could bring prices down a little further. So there's some headwinds and there's some tailwinds. Um, another tailwind is supply. There's been a lot of supply the past few years, but starts has been really low all throughout 2023. It's just hard to get construction financing. The numbers don't pencil with where values are and with where construction costs are and interest rates. Um, so starting in, you know, 2026 and 2027, the numbers show that we should have a lot of rent growth because there's going to be no new supply, no new de deliveries. But until then, yeah, it's, it's kind of trying to figure out how will rates not come down fast enough to, for some of these maturity, upcoming maturities that they're going to have to be a forced sell. So yeah, it'll be Got interesting it. to see. I wish I had a crystal ball. No, thank you so much. I mean, uh, Levi's. Um, so, what is your, um, if you have to tell uh, our listeners uh, or our investor who wanted to get into multifamily space, uh, especially for next year, uh, what is your recommendation for them to do in order to get these deals um, before you know, like institutional coming back uh, and swoop up all these deals and jack up the price again, like a couple of years ago, right? So, um, what is your recommendation they should do? build a really good relationship with the brokers right now. They have more time on their hands than ever before because there's almost no transactions are down. I think 82% um, year over year. Um, and so, yeah, they have a lot of time on their hands and um, just trying to find deals. I'm, I'm expecting to get a signed PSA today. I have a verbal agreement with the seller for a deal. It's a seven and a half to 8% stabilized yield on cost. Right. which is re with really realistic mm -hmm. um, pro forma with the management company's budget. And um, and this is in Utah when cap rates 24 months ago were three and a half percent like this. The comps are all a hundred thousand per unit um, higher than my price I'm paying. So I think right now is the time to try to start tying up deals and working on deals um, that do pencil. You can't, some deals, yeah, the bid-ask spread is too wide that it doesn't make sense. But I think now is the time to try to be building those relationships and be um, working on securing Any. properties now. Got it. And um, can you tell us a little bit about your company, Well Creation Asset Management? Um, what, I know you guys are investing in real estate. Are you guys doing asset management as well So for other properties that, are, that you guys don't own? Or, uh, tell us a little bit about your company and um, what it does. Yeah. So no, I don't do any third party asset management just for my own portfolio. Um, yeah. My brother is in self-storage. Um, so he owns some self-storage facilities and then he's in the process of developing um, as well. Um, so I'm looking to be more involved with that with him as well, possibly too in the future. But no, I mean, I've mainly been just focused on 
running my own family office and then doing um, some syndications. And then really over the past year, I've started to build relationships with institutional equity groups Mm -hmm. to scale and do larger transactions. But yeah, I mean, I'm looking to, as as soon as um, the deal flow is more consistent, I'm looking to, you know, make some hires and, and scale my company more so, but for now, I'm just being opportunistic and just seeing what the market gives. So that's awesome. And Levi, uh, thank you so much for spending time with me today to talk to me about your real estate journeys, about your company, um, you know, where the company is going and also, you know, like uh, talking about what's uh, happening in the market currently and offers the advices to our listeners of how to uh, build a relationship with the brokers and get the deals and talking to the investors as well, especially right now uh, with the investor expectation. And so uh, if our listener wanted to find out more about you, Levi, or your company invest with you or connect with you, you or be friend with you in general, uh, where can they go? Yeah, uh, it's called wealthcreationmgt.com is the website. And my email, Levi at wealthcreationmgt.com. So yeah, or you can find me on LinkedIn or Facebook. Happy to talk with anyone. Levi, thank you so much uh, for your time. We appreciate you. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavis Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, Check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sale and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.